Morning, CBC. Uh, you might notice my voice is a little bad this morning. Sorry if it drones you to sleep. I've got a pretty bad cold. So you might pray quickly for me before I start that my voice would hold out. So I needed this. I needed this. You would expect to hear that phrase from someone who's about to go on a vacation, right? You get back from a long day of work and you sit down and you might say, man, I needed this. You've got like a, a nice cold Coke or something else of your choice in front of you and a big steak and you sit down or whatever you like to eat. Maybe it's McDonald's. I don't know. You sit down and you say, I needed this. Now that's a usual circumstance for using that phrase, but I heard this phrase, I needed this, in my professor's office about two years ago. Uh, he's one of my favorite men in, that is no longer with us. He died about two years ago. He's with Jesus now. His name was Steve Strauss. And this statement, I needed this, was in response to his finding out that he was going to lose his batter, battle with cancer in three short months. I was about to embark on a five-month teaching stint in India. And this phrase, I needed this, struck me, and I'll probably never forget it. That phrase, though, stuck with me because, you know, it's like an unusual response, right, to say, I needed this. And I'm going to give you another unusual response to something in our culture. I hope that might stick with you this week, at least, maybe at least an hour after the sermon. We needed this. We needed the Supreme Court decision recently. We needed a wake-up call to firmly put us where we ought to belong in the plan of God. We needed a cultural shift so blatant that we could no longer ignore it. We needed this in order to remind us of our purpose and to keep us on mission, on what we as the church of God, as individual believers, are to be really doing. We needed this. You know, I think we've never really been able to grasp the message of First Peter. Because we live in such a comfortable climate. We have no idea what suffering is like. Suffering to us, you know, is like when the AC goes out for two weeks, like my wife and I recently. Now, suffering to us is maybe a harsh word from someone jokingly about Jesus. No, we needed this decision. And we needed to rethink our purpose. So I'll challenge you today with something that was said last week. What is the new normal? For you, what is the new normal going to be? And I think our passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, speaks to that. It gives us a clear definition of what our purpose is as a church. You know, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 17. So 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possessions, so that you might proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to emperor as supreme authority 
or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. As God's slaves live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, we often forget our hearts are prone to forget what you've done for us, forget your good mercy to us and your grace in our life. Help us to remember that. Help us to prepare our minds for action and be sure of our purpose. Lord, without you, we have nothing. I just ask that you would help me speak today and help our hearts to be open to what you would have us to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think one of the things I want to do today is work hard to help you see the story that these guys were involved in. Who are these guys? Well, the churches Peter was writing to. I want to work a little bit, at least at the beginning, and, and hardly on helping you to understand their context. Because without understanding their context, this book is meaningless to you. So I'll just state a few things here about First Peter and about the lives that were going on at that time that Peter was writing to. First, the book is Old Testament dependent. Uh, it's probably the highest quote allusion book in the whole New Testament, drawing from Exodus chapter 19. The theme of the Exodus, Isaiah 43, and the theme of redemption there, as well as the life of Abraham. So that's the, the theological backdrop of the book. Peter begins by saying persecution is coming and will purify his people. He also says that persecution serves to put us in the right mindset, and that is to value Jesus above worldly things. It was written about 30 years after Jesus went back to heaven. He ascended. About 30 years. We're thinking about 64 to 67 AD. Now at this time, Christianity was popular enough to take notice, to be taken notice of by the Roman government. And so, some, some of you know this is coming, but in 64 AD, what happened in the Roman Empire? Those are real questions. Does anyone know what happened around 64 AD? Big event. Okay. John Maurer's not here. Yeah? What was that, Greg? Yeah, Rome burned. Rome burned. And so I'm going to read you an account of what happened from a historian and, and what was going on in the Christian community. It says this. Therefore, to stop the rumor that he had set fire to Rome, Emperor Nero falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures the persons commonly called Christians, who were generally hated for their differences. Accordingly, those were arrested who confessed they were Christians on their information, a vast multitude of others were convicted on the charge of burning the city and also of hating the human race. In their very deaths, they were made the subject of sport, covered with the hides of wild animals, mauled to death by dogs, nailed to crosses, or set fire. And when the day ended, they were burned to serve for the evening lights. Nero mingled with the common people as a charioteer. For this cause, a feeling of compassion arose toward the Christians Though guilty and deserving of capital punishment, they seem not to be cut off for the public good, but for the sport of one person. So does that help you a little bit? Like, he isn't writing this to someone who isn't suffering or who isn't about to go into suffering. He's writing this to people whose children have been taken away and trampled. He's writing this to children whose parents have been crucified. And if we think this is far from our modern world, have you watched the videos of ISIS beheading Christians? 
Have you read about how they crucified those people who broke Sharia law recently? Have you read about how they've drawn and quartered those who oppose them? But men have not changed. Just because we live in a society that values some kind of, uh, not violence, but some kind of standard doesn't mean that the hearts of men have changed. And so this could happen. It does happen to believers around the world now. I want to challenge you today. The first point I want to make in my own words is to own the story. Now, this is a younger phrase. Okay, I'll, I'll give you that. When I beat Andrew in tennis, man, yeah, I owned him, right? Oh, I owned him, right? Or when he beats me, he might say the same thing, okay? When, you know, the younger generation uses this a lot in games too, right? Man, I own that guy. We also have a phrase that's kind of like, own it. Own it. Some of you might understand that. I think most of you do. It means like, make it your own, right? Make it personal. So my challenge to you today is to own the story that Peter sets forth here and that God has for us in life. Own it. Make it your own. I want to read you a paraphrase of those first two verses again so that you can understand what part of this owning means. But instead of that, this is my own paraphrase, you are chosen. You are priests of the king. You are a holy nation, a people purchased so that you might tell others about who God is because he brought you out of a hopeless way of life into God's marvelous new way of life. Once you had no sense of community as a group of people, now you are God's people. Before you had received no mercy at all, now you have mercy from God. See, the purpose of the people of God that Peter was writing to was to make God look good. Simply put, to make God look good. This is probably the most clear definition of the church. Us, we are the church in the entire Bible. It's succinct, well put. And it gives us our purpose. It gives us the purpose we to be about. Now, Peter wanted to encourage the people that although they had been rejected by their fellow workers, their fellow people they would go and eat with. I mean, think about it. In your life, if you went to work with someone who had taken your friend and killed him, it'd be kind of difficult, wouldn't it? He wants to encourage them that even though they have been rejected, God still loved them. This is basically a direct quote at the beginning of 11 from Exodus. Why does, why does Peter choose this? I think there's probably two reasons. One is to emphasize that their purpose is no different than the purpose of God's people for all time. What is that? A nation of priests. What does a priest do? Mediate for God. This isn't like a Catholic priest. Okay, I know some of you are from a Catholic background. This is not someone who does the cross and you know intercedes for you in your sins with God. This is someone who mediates the message of salvation. God could choose right now, couldn't he, to like appear as a hologram in every person's home and tell them the gospel? Certainly not apart from God's power. He chooses, though, to use us. And so I think he's emphasizing their identity. Secondly, it's a reminder of how Israel failed. It's a reminder of, hey, we have a purpose, don't fail. Now, I want to recall to you one Old Testament story that might strike you. And you've heard it before, but as they were leaving, they just crossed through the Red Sea, right? What was the people's response as soon as there was a little bit of trial? Yeah, I want to go back. I'm going back. Ah, forget it. It wasn't that bad. I mean, Pharaoh only killed my firstborn sons. It wasn't that bad. Pharaoh only enslaved me and made me build his stuff. It wasn't that bad. So I think he's reminding them here. Look, this is a reminder that when persecution comes, sometimes we forget 
our purpose. Sometimes we fail to do our purpose in God's will. It's interesting, isn't it, that we, he would choose this for Gentile audience. I think there are a couple of phrases here that are worthy of taking note. His virtues. Look at verse 9. His virtues. It says you are to declare his virtues. That speaks of moral goodness. It speaks of the character of God. Not just who he is, but what he does. Everything about him. You are to declare that. And in verse 10 it says his mercy. This speaks of deliverance. It speaks of the deliverance of God for his people. And so it is probably good to think of this concept, this purpose of the church, to declare who God is and what he's done to the nations as undergirding. That's the motivation for everything that follows. I think that's the lesson that we have here theologically, that the persecution of saints does not change God's purpose. I have it right up here, but God gives purpose and motivation to his people. And that motivation is his salvation and deliverance. So this undergirds everything that we do as believers. It gives us motivation to go out into the world when it's hard. Because, see, we come with questions, don't we? We come with questions when people start hating us. I've never had my son taken away and murdered. That would surely arise some questions like it was for these guys. I think Peter is addressing that. Purpose is found in the great plan of God and being part of it. Maybe you've heard of her, but Joni Erickson Tata is a great, great witness of God's purpose among difficult circumstances. Let me read you a little bit about her. She was a quadriplegic because of a, living in a wheelchair now still because of an accident in 1967. She is an internationally known mouth artist, vocalist, and radio host, and an author of 17 books, and an advocate for disabled persons worldwide. She says this about what happened and how she was feeling. She says, I was lying on a hospital bed, despairing, asking my friends to put drugs in the IV so that I would die. She didn't want to live anymore. She said that she didn't care when her friends came and told her that everything was going to be okay. She was despairing of life until one person came and helped her to see the purpose of God for her life. She said that she wouldn't dare list 16 good biblical reasons why this happened because I wouldn't dare say, she says, that because suffering is still a mystery, she wouldn't dare give reasons to why God allowed it to happen. God does not think that a spinal cord injury is a great idea. God does not think that murder of people is a great idea. There's no inherent goodness in these things. But he does it for his glory. He did that for her, giving her purpose on a bed without arms and legs, the use of those. Certainly, he has a purpose for you and I in his church. Certainly, even though these believers, some of them would be crucified. Some of them would lose all of their family members to being burned alive. But certainly, he had a purpose for them still. And so, the reception of God's mercy then, in our life, is always what gives us purpose. That's what he says. Why does he say you can declare? Because He says that you've received God's mercy. Luke 7 is important here. I think also Psalm 25. Luke 7 is a prostitute. We're just reading about how Jesus ate with sinners, right? During the first hour. Well, here was one of the sinners who was a former prostitute. And the Pharisees were really unhappy that she was there doing what she was doing. What was she doing? She was wiping his feet. And Jesus said she can love much because she's been forgiven much. Psalm 25, 11 says, For the sake of your reputation, O Lord, Forgive my sin, because it is great. And Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, were to keep track of sins, 
Who can stand before you? But if you are willing, and I know you are, that you might be honored, I rely on you, Lord. I rely on you with my whole being. I wait for your assuring word. I yearn for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. Yes, more than watchmen for the morning. And so the motivation to do the deeds that are coming later is the deliverance of God in our lives. The motivation is deliverance from sin in our lives. And he makes himself look good through that. That's really what's going on there. Now we herald the message. We are not priests, but we herald a message God gives us of deliverance. We don't have special offices, but we do have who? We have Jesus. We have the full message. And he gives us purpose in our lives. His deliverance from sin gives us purpose. This is what Tom Constable says. Christians, generally speaking, do not understand or appreciate God's purpose for the church that Peter presented so clearly here. Consequently, so this, many Christians lack purpose in their lives. Evident in this is including a self-centered life, unwillingness to sacrifice worldly goals, and preoccupation with material things. Let me ask you, do you lack motivation for the Christian life? Oh, this hits me hard. Okay. Do you lack motivation for the Christian life? Do you lack motivation for the Christian life? I know I do sometimes. Oftentimes, the reason we lack motivation is because we aren't keeping our eyes fixed on the cross and on the mercy we've received there. Our eyes are over here looking at something we shouldn't be looking at. If you lack motivation for the Christian life, I say look to the cross. As this passage says, it says, here's your purpose. Why? Because of the mercy God has given you. That's the motivation in your life. The mercy of God. The Lord shows us our value there too, doesn't he? There's no greater place than when Jesus is on the cross, suffering in our place, than to see how much God values you and I. And if that doesn't give us purpose, nothing will. You can't muster it up inside yourself. You can't go somewhere else to look for it. Purpose is given at the cross to us by the death of our Lord Jesus for our sins. So own the story. The story is simply the purpose of the church. Own it. Don't stand on the outside looking in. Be a part of that story. Be a part of proclaiming the message of God to the nations. We really desire security and belonging, don't we? We really desire to be a part of something great. And essentially, this question comes when difficulty comes. What will happen to me? We sit there, we ask, what will happen to me? Don't you think the believers in Rome are probably thinking that as well? Knock, knock, knock on the door. Maybe not even a knock. Maybe a slam the door open. What will happen to me? The question they ask. And that's the same question we ask. We wonder about God's purpose for our lives. We wonder about what he's going to do when persecution comes. I think there are probably three categories of people here today. Maybe you'll find yourself in one of these. Maybe not, but I've tried to sum up some things. One, maybe you're already owning it, man. Maybe you are owning the Christian walk. I say to you, God bless you. That is awesome. Maybe you're owning it. Maybe you're out there having unbelievers into your home all the time. Maybe you are living a victorious life. I say to you, keep pressing on because hard times will come. You will be tempted to despair. But remember your purpose. 
Second group probably here isn't so sure about this story. Maybe you're not so sure about me up here telling you this story of your purpose. Maybe you, maybe you think this concept is difficult. Maybe to you, Christianity is about a comfortable experience of church. We've got, we've got a lot of that comfort here. We've got some nice carpets. We've got some nice padded pews. We've got some coffee that's pretty good. You know, maybe to you, Christianity is about a comfortable church experience. Music you like. An uneventful Sunday in a week. Maybe it's about having enough money in the bank so that you really don't have to worry about what you're going to eat the next month. Maybe your experience of Jesus is limited to a Bible study and a sermon in a week. If that's where you are, kind of lacking motivation in that place there, I've been there too. To you I say, reread this text this week. Dwell on the fact that your purpose in life extends far beyond a sermon on Sunday. In fact, you could forget everything I had and you would be pleasing to God if you lived out the call of believers. To you I say, don't go away angry or frustrated. Reread the text and ask God to reveal the truth. A third group here, and maybe that's the majority, I don't know, hasn't really listened to much of what I've said. You're tired. I understand that. I'm tired too. You've had a long week. Maybe you fought with your spouse this morning. Okay. I've done that. Maybe even you're wrestling with God because he's done things in your life or allowed them that you can't deal with. And so you're here because you have to be or for social responsibility and you aren't happy with God. To you I say, turn to Jesus. There's no other place to be. That anger, that that casualness about life is not going to satisfy you. But Jesus will. And I know that's cliche, but I don't have anything else, <laughs> right? I don't have something special here to offer you. I say turn to Jesus. Renew your purpose in your life. I've been there. We've all been, I think, in one of those places. So be honest with yourself this morning. Now for some practical application. I think in America right now, we don't really know what's going to happen. If I told you, like a prophet, that I could stand up here and tell you, oh, we know this and this and this is going to happen and we're going to, they're going to take our stuff. I don't know any. But I do know this, that God wants us to know our purpose and the purpose of the church so that when that comes, we are ready. It could be, truthfully, that the police might show up and arrest me or others in public ministry for hate crimes. Right? That could really happen. It could be that they take away Christian businesses, make us pay property tax. I don't know. We simply don't know. And frankly, to be honest, we probably wouldn't want to know what could happen. We just probably wouldn't want to know. God says he'll give us grace in time of need, and I'm thankful that that grace comes in time of need. But we just don't know. But I think the real crux of the argument here is that we are to have an attitude about the reality of suffering. It's not here yet, but we're to gird our minds. You prepare your mind for this probable coming suffering. I don't think we're ready for that. I don't. You know why I don't think so? I'll tell you why. I go on to CNN... And I read Christians' responses to the post there. And they are not loving. I go on Fox News and I read affirmations of articles there. And they don't align what Jesus tells me a Christian is supposed to be like. I read articles often or comments on Facebook from believers. And they are really bigoted. That's why I know we're not ready. 
That's one of the things. Instead of living out the story, instead of owning the story, living out the gospel, we're trying to win the argument. Brothers and sisters, we need to be done with that. We need to be done with trying to win the argument and revisit the problems of society. Instead, we need to do what Peter said. Realize that we are God's chosen people and proclaim His virtues. Arguments never won anyone to the faith. Now certainly, later it says we are to defend our faith. But not to argue. My second exhortation to us today is to live the story. Own the story and live the story. I think that this is important for us. We are mentally heavy Christians in America. we got a lot of knowledge and a little living. Let's see what Peter says here in verses 11 through 17. He says that the purpose of the churches that he wrote to was to keep, to, to make God look good. How? How do I make God look good? You're saying here, okay, that's great. We're here as a church, we're supposed to make God look good. How do you do that? By doing good deeds. That's the focus of the passage. Look, I am not going to give you the whole counsel of Scripture, but in this eight verses, right, 9 through 17, yeah, that's the right math. In this eight verses, the clear exhortation to us is to do what? Do good deeds in culture. When persecution comes, how do you, how do you act? You do good deeds. That's what he says here. I think there are a couple of notes that we need to take in mind about the context here. The first note is this. This is Peter who betrayed Jesus three times. This isn't a guy who is living perfectly. The man who tells us to do good deeds is the one who betrayed Jesus three times. Doesn't that strike you that God in his providence would have this man writing this book? And so this isn't from a place of like, oh man, I'm the perfect person. This is from a place of, you know, some of you don't like this word, but brokenness. Can I say that? A place of something that he struggled with in his own life. Second, I think that there are two ways that we might think about good deeds without getting into detail. One is good deeds that everyone thinks is right, like a mother, right? A mother taking care of her baby, that's good. Everyone would think that's good, right? The other one is something that Christians might do, like ethical, like at work. I heard a story from a young adult this week. Someone lied about something at work and it came back to bite him the very day on an email, right? But Christians in the workplace, if we make an error, we, we admit our mistake. That might be a good deed that others look at and say, man, you're an idiot. Why would you do that? And that's nothing to say of our stance on abortion and some of the more popular things, without going mentioning them, that are happening in culture now. So where do we stand on those things? How do we respond in those things? I think those are the morally praiseworthy. Those are the deeds that he's talking about. There are some beautiful things here that are deeds. Specific things that he talks about. Now, why do I say beautiful? Eh, I like that. It's kind of the postmodern generation thing. Instead of good, I say beautiful sometimes. But it's also encapsulated in that word that's used here. The first meaning of that word is to look at a woman or something that's aesthetically pleasing. In other words, to the eyes, it looks beautiful. And so Peter uses these words here, and he, he says several things here are beautiful. The first one is, in verses 11 and 12, self-denial. Basically self-denial. Denial of sinful self. I'll focus on one thing here. That 
these sinful things wage war on our souls. It's not just a friendly encounter with sin. It's not just, I can have a little and I'll be okay. No, these things wage war on our souls. John Piper wrote a book called uh, Don't Waste Your Life. And it may be even that a good hobby, maybe even for myself, like games that don't take up my whole life, or archery, which I really like, or other things, those actually wage war on our souls because we're not doing anything profitable. In other words, we're not doing what he says in verses 9 and 10. Knowing our purpose. Living out of that merciful receipt of salvation. The second thing that's beautiful in 13 and 14 is submission. Your thought about submission being beautiful in the world? I'll tell you one of the greatest acts that has given me the most opportunity to share the gospel is being submissive to a difficult boss. Arby's was a training ground for that. I don't know, like, I don't know if Mario's in here, but I'm sure, Junior, Mario Junior, <laughs> that working at Wendy's has given him plenty of opportunities. I know in your lives, submission can be a beautiful act that preaches the gospel. The third act here is this uh, doing of good deeds. Just the going out and actually, it's replacing, it's not just sitting there on your computer, it's going out and actually doing something. And so that's what he says here, good conduct. I have a good example of this, what this means, um, what he encapsulates, and it's a World War II story. You know, I don't like to go there too often, but I know some of you like it, and so here it is for you, a World War II story. Uh, American missionaries Herb and Ruth Klingen and their young son were prisoners of the Japanese for three years. Herb's diary told how his family's captures tortured, murdered, and starved to death many of the camp's prisoners. These prisoners particularly hated and feared the camp commandant, Konishi. Herb described one especially diabolical plan Konishi forced on the Klingons and their fellow inmates near the end of the war. He found a way to give them rice called palay with unhusked uh, skin on it. Now that doesn't sound too bad, but except that if you eat that, it'll cut you up inside and kill you. You'll bleed to death. So they actually had to like beat the rice. But the problem was, as they beat the rice, they used more calories than they did by eating the rice. And so many more died because of this. It was a death sentence for the inmates. But he spared, God and his divine providence spared the Klingons and prevented the commandant from carrying out his plan of shooting and killing them all. Years later, and I read this on the internet recently, Konishi had been found working at a groundskeeper in Manila on a golf course. He was tried for war crimes, and I guess it was at his trial. The story isn't very clear, but he confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. And he purposely said it was the example of the Klingons in his camp that led him to seek out this Jesus later in life. Now that is a great example of undergoing persecution, doing this kind of good deeds, submission, uh, that kind of thing that leads to salvation. That is proclamation. That is heralding the virtues of the one who called us. See, the problem is for us, really, preaching the gospel without deeds is like trying to make converts. You ever had someone come up to you and try to make small talk and then like try to sell you something? Man, I hate that. That is, oh. First of all, I don't like to sell things. Some of you do. I know Greg's good at selling things. Man, I hate it when someone tries to pull the bait and switch. 
That's what we do when we preach the gospel without deeds that accompany it. We bait and switch people. We try to make them into converts. And that doesn't work. And it's not honoring to the Lord. We need good deeds along with a message that saves. The last beautiful act in this passage is a free life. I like this one because Americans like freedom, don't we? This is a different kind of freedom. This is a freedom from conscience, a freedom to serve others. It's a freedom that says, I'm okay to die. I know what I believe. I'm confident in God's purpose for my life. It's a freedom that allows us to do what verse 17 says, to respect those who persecute us. Because that's what the emperor was doing. He killed them. And yet Paul, or sorry, Peter's command was to respect the emperor. The concept here is that God uses people's conduct as a witness. And if you need some scriptural proof, we can go to the life of Jesus. Jesus says, if you don't believe my message, what? Believe the works that I do because they prove my message. That's the message throughout scripture. Our conduct is proof or validation of the message we speak. Look, it's something negatively. Maybe it's like this. Man, I love Jesus. Hey man, let's go play games for 18 hours today. Binge gaming, oh yeah. Or, man, Jesus loves you. Hey, get the H out of my way. I can't, did you see? He just cut me off on the, right? How about this? Man, I can't believe anyone would go to a strip club, but then late at night in her bedroom on a computer. Or, Jesus says you can't love God money, but hey man, what do you think about this uh, 10 bedroom, five and a half bathroom house I know it's like 50 miles from church, but I don't really need to go there every week. I got my Bible and and my TV. And hey, you know, like, I know it's five acres. I know it's a lot of money, but, you know. Hampton Keithley once, you know, told me a story about a sermon that was very impactful on me. And when we think about living the Christian life in a little bit of a transition here, what did Jesus ever do that he was persecuted or killed? I mean, that just kind of struck me. Because, you know, like, I think, I guess in my worldly way of thinking, I think that people that are hurt and abused did something wrong. You know? But the reality is, just like our Lord Jesus, good conduct doesn't guarantee anything. But bad conduct, in other words, living like the world here, will guarantee, what? That our witness will be ruined. These things that I just listed will guarantee to ruin your witness. Good conduct... Gives you good witness, but doesn't guarantee anything. Doesn't guarantee safety, but it guarantees that you're following the purpose of the church. So live the story. The story is simply the purpose of the church. God's resemptive plan for the nations. I think there are three things. This is like a come to Jesus moment, okay? We're going to be very honest with each other. Say that respectfully. Three things that we can take specifically from this passage to our lives today. First, Materialism. Materialism wages war on your soul. There's no way around it. Valuing things more than God's purpose for your life wages, in fact, in many of us, it is waging war right now. We find an unprecedented level of comfort in this country and we justify it easily. The Bible says clearly it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
Living free, as Peter told us to do, is extremely hard when you have things. Great example, hoarders. You ever seen hoarders? Does anyone know what hoarders is? Not, not a single hand. No one in here knows hoarders. I, I see a couple. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you. I didn't want to have to spend a bunch. Okay. So in hoarders, these people have like trashed their homes, okay? Basically, they have one aisle through like magazines and trash and dead cats over here, right? It's, so it's a bad situation. You know what happens when they try to clean out a hoarder's house? Man, they take one thing. It's like a five-year-old utility bill. And like, okay, we'll throw that away. And the person's like, no, no, I gotta have that. They might, I might need that. And they're like, okay, okay, certainly this dead animal we can throw. It. No, that's sentimental to me. And then there's a bag of trash over here. They won't let go of anything. In fact, that stuff owns them. It owns them and ruins their life. I think that's a good picture of how stuff will own us and ruin our witness. Don't let stuff own you. I think a very practical... Now, you don't have to go out and do this. This is just just a suggestion. Maybe the next time you feel bad, instead of going and buying something, you sell something. How about that? Instead of going and buying a chair, how about you sell a chair and give the money to CBC... Sorry, Community Bible Chapel. Okay? Man, how about that? Now, this is not saying that if all of you went out and sold your chairs and gave money to our, our church, that'd be great. But <laughs> that's not what I'm necessarily I'm saying. Contemplate how you might practically carry out what Peter is saying because that stuff is waging war against your soul. And it's a serious matter in this country. And you know what? That stuff's going to be taken away anyway if you if you stand firm in your faith. I think a second uh, example that I can give to us very practically is that we are a people who are very proud about our autonomy, aren't we? Submission is like a word we pay service to over here as Christians, and over here we're like, yeah, forget that stuff. You know, it's kind of like this. If you don't do the way things we do it here in Texas, we're going to let you know about it, and we're going to secede from the United States, and we don't really care what you think about that. Right? We're going to do what we're going to do. You aren't going to say anything about it. I think this is this attitude has infiltrated our very being, and it's evidenced in Mark Driscoll. You know, like I, you know, it's a very churchy example, but he confesses. He says this specifically: I have confessed to past pride, anger, and domineering spirit. Driscoll also said that past year had not only taken a toll on his family's health, but he also left them physically unsafe at times. He was a man, a leading member of the emerging church, kind of came out of that, who led 15 mega church campuses in the Northwest. And all of those dissolved. Why? I think primarily because of his pride and refusal to submit to authority. Wouldn't it be beautiful that the next time you disagree with someone, maybe you even disagree with the message. Okay. Maybe you disagree with an... Wouldn't it be beautiful in God's eyes if the next time, just simply put, the next time you disagree with someone, you let it go and you submit. Just simply let it go. I hate that Frozen song, but let it go, okay? Let it go. No, I, I won't sing that. I won't put you under that. A third thing, and a final exhortation to us today is, 
This is a time in our country, and thanks to my brothers on the Wednesday morning, when we can feel self-righteous. Isn't it? We look around at the world and say, it's, it's gone away. There's no righteousness out there. And so we're tempted to sit here in our church, in our homes, and condemn others because of that. But that is not what Peter says here. In fact, they were being murdered, and what does he say? He says, go out and do good deeds. Wow. Sure, we disagree with many of the stances culture has taken on many important things dear to our hearts, but that gives us no reason to disengage. In fact, what happened with evolution and disengagement of the evangelical culture? We lost our witness in the world. Do not disengage. The next time, here's a practice, the next time you have a disagreement with someone about an issue like that, just agree to disagree. Just agree to disagree and move on to the gospel. Just move on to Jesus because you aren't going to win their hearts by arguing about that stuff. You don't need to try to go back and rewin the argument. It's not about right or wrong. It's about Jesus. We never really had a moral majority in this country. And our first impulse, when these things happen, we think we've lost control, is to want to get that control back. Tell you what, we never had control. They never have control. Who's in control? God. And so, the next time you find yourself in that situation, agree to disagree. So the purpose of the church is to make God look good in all contexts. Own the story, live the story. Own it, live it. Tried to make it real simple for you. Because I know that I walk away sometimes with no idea of what I heard because I just can't, my mind is everywhere. Own it, live it. Own the story, live the story. I've challenged you today that God's mercy and salvation, His virtues, have always given purpose and motivation to His people despite persecution. In light of our calling and place in God's plan, I challenge us to own the story. To ready our minds, to set our attitudes, that even if persecution comes, we are firm in our faith. We know what we're to be about, and we are living it. I said that the church makes good God look good by conducting itself, each member in the world, in a beautiful way. In submission, in doing of good deeds, in those four things I said. Finally, I want you to quietly for 30 seconds, 30 seconds seems like a long time, but for 30 seconds, I want you to consider or take your, I don't have my iPhone, take your phone out and write this or write it here somewhere, put it down physically, the following statement. I will, okay, real simple, I will, what? So for 30 seconds, I want you to finish that statement. As a result of this passage today, in which the scriptures challenge us to live our calling out, I will X. Remember, own it, live it. Own it and live it. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we don't know what you have in store for your people, but we do know that we have a great purpose. We have a God who loves us. We have salvation in Jesus Christ. And we are tasked, we have a, a purpose of heralding that message, making you known. What There is no greater purpose in this life. Help me and help this body of believers here at Community Bible Chapel 
to live out our calling so that on a, on a hard day, and they are certainly to come, whether persecution or trials in life, on a hard day, we know who we are, and we can confidently say before you that we love you and we have lived like it. We do love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we